I'm going to keep talking. I'm coming through. Fantastic. Cool. Today is the only day that you may fall asleep in church and snore, and you won't be in trouble, okay, because of last night. <laughs> yeah, so we're going we're gonna to try and finish off John chapter 6 today. It's, there's, a, there's a quite a big chunk, uh, the last bit of John chapter 6, and, um, but, but you know, like the people in Jesus' day, they didn't always get what he said. So in some sections of the last part of John 6, like Jesus repeats himself because these guys are so slow. He has to say it again, but a bit different. And so we're going to skip over some of those repeats, if that's all right. So we're going to just uh, look at different scriptures at the end of John 6. And uh, what I'm going to do today, I'm, I'm not going to put any points up because I want the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of you separately and uh, trust God to do that. So John chapter 6, the first verses from verse 41. Remember Jesus has, he's fed the 5,000, he's gone over the sea, he's calmed the, the storm, he has this conversation with them, we talked about it last week, where he says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. Well, the conversation carries on. John's got some long chapters. At this, Jesus saying, I'm the bread of heaven, at this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know this guy. We checked him in nappies. How can he come from heaven? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? This is now Jesus. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets they will be taught, they will all be taught by God. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 54. The Jews were struggling with this idea that Jesus was both from earth, and they saw him grow up, they know his mom and dad, and from heaven. They struggled to reconcile the humanity of Christ with the divinity of Christ. They, they couldn't get it because in their thinking, it's not wrong for them 2,000 years ago, well, you're either an angel and you came on earth like Jesus and everyone else, and you were from earth. They couldn't grasp this dual concept that Jesus was both divine and human, right? Now, we obviously have the benefit of 2,000 years later, looking back on history, having the whole Bible, having been through all kinds of heresies over the centuries about the divinity and the humanity of Christ. we kind of familiar with the fact that Jesus is both divine and human, but they battled with that concept. Fully man, fully God. The problem is we don't know how this works. I can't tell you this is where the, the man part started and ended. This is where the divine. You, we don't know exactly how it works, but it's clear the Bible teaches it. In fact, it's one of the great mysteries of our faith, how a person can be both fully human and fully divine. I don't get it, but it's what the Bible teaches. One of the great mysteries of our faith we have to hold in kind of tension, this incarnation of Christ. And it's not just a kind of a random event or an unrelated, oh, Jesus happens to be divine and human, good for him. It's actually very important for our faith. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus had to stand as a representative before God, as a representative for all of humankind. Just as Adam did in the garden, he was the federal head 
they call it. He was the representative. When he sinned, all were painted with the same brush. We've all sinned because we're Adam. Adam was the representative. And just if you're thinking we could have done better, we couldn't have. But we're all painted with the same brush as Adam. We all have this original sin or the sin that's come down because of Adam being the representative. But Paul says Jesus is like the second Adam. He came, he was perfect, he didn't sin, and so he stands before God as a second representative, a much better one. And he says, human race cannot stand the wrath of God for their sin, but I will be their representative. I will stand in their place as a substitute and take on the punishment for sin instead of them. And so Jesus is a, he's the second Adam, if you like, the second representative of humanity so that we could be forgiven if we put our faith in him. And so, so Jesus was fully human with all of its glorious experiences. He would have celebrated like we celebrated last night, maybe not on watching a screen, but there would have been celebrations. He would have enjoyed life, the wonders of, of being human and the physical limitations. We know that Jesus got tired. He fell asleep. He got hungry. He experienced all these things. And then Jesus says in the same verses, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Well-known scripture, but to the Jews, this would have been quite upsetting, quite offensive. Do you know why? This is what they would say. Ah, Abraham's our father. We're God's special people. We're chosen by God because of our physical birth. And Jesus is saying, no, yes, no, yes you're special because God chose to reveal his plan to Israel. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs are the promises. Theirs are the prophets. They, they understand the sacrificial system. They're special in that sense. But just because they're born of Abraham, their physical birth, does not guarantee them salvation. Jesus says, the Father must draw you to come to me. They would have been a bit upset. On the other end of the spectrum, some Christians, they can be a bit arrogant, perhaps a bit puffed up, and they say, well, I found Jesus. It was my good choice. It was my clever decision to put my faith in Jesus and follow him. And, and boy, is Jesus glad that I'm following him. We can be a bit arrogant, but actually Jesus says, unless the Father draws you, even our first attempt of trying to find Jesus, actually, he says, my Father initiated that before you even realize it. How does God draw us to him? Well, through circumstances, sometimes good, sometimes difficult, sometimes traumatic. Sometimes he draws us through crises. He gets our attention through what's happening in our world. Sometimes it's through other people telling us about God, witnessing, sharing his love with us. Sometimes we have this yearning in our heart for something that this world just can't satisfy. You know, there's something more to life, but we, there's like this inner ache the things of God. And so God softens our heart. He works on our thinking. He will sometimes convict us of sin. I remember as an unsaved university student being convicted of sin, and I wasn't even saved. It was part of God's process of drawing me to Him. So Jesus says, they will be taught by God. He's, he's, it's quite funny because He is God, and He's teaching them at this point, and He's quoting Isaiah 54 that says, one day they'll be taught by God. And like he's fulfilling the scripture he's quoting at the same time. Like it's quite like forward and back in time. It's like time travel, I think. But I'm very tired, so I don't know. 
Can you remember back to your schooling career? Are there any teachers here today? Who, who is a teacher or has been a teacher? One, come on, Tara, put up your hand. Natalie, put up your hand. Like there's some teachers. Don't be embarrassed. It's okay to be a teacher. Do you remember like those teachers that inspired you? They were full of passion and like you might have had many teachers in your schooling career, but there were a few that stood out because they just, they loved teaching that subject or there was a great passion for it. I can remember an English teacher, Miss Joyce, she gave us such a love for literature. I can still remember and recite off by heart some of the poems I learned in matric. I'm not going to recite Shakespeare to you because that would be awkward. That's for my wife only. But, <laughs> but I cared if I wanted to, right? But then we've, like most of the other teachers we had are probably average teachers. Would you agree? Who has ever had an average teacher? Like, they, they taught the subject, they knew their stuff, but it was a job to them. That's okay. It's not wrong. I'm just saying we all, most of us had many average teachers. We had this one guy in accounting in high school, Mr. Smith. He was like in his mid-50s. He had a bit of a kind of a beard. I'm trying to look who's got a beard here that could... Anyway, like he, his, his neck didn't move. Like he was quite a stocky, burly guy. And like he'd walk around like this. But he wasn't intimidating. Like he was soft and pudgy, that kind of... And he had these big glasses on and like... And uh, we nicknamed him Zol because he looked like he was stoned half the time. <laughs> Zol Smith taught us accounting. And uh, he, uh, we think like two generations back there was some Aussie because he would often say, Ah, oh, blokes, sharpen your pencils, you know, like for accounting stuff. But in the, in the school I went to, is a public school, and uh, it's a very old school, not in this province. And the, the classrooms in that particular block, they had like the proper green boards and you write with chalk, you know. And there was like a storeroom at the back, like right behind the board. And so the door to the storeroom was like his desk was here, the board was there, and there was a door. And he could go back into the storeroom and get books or chalk or whatever. And so he would leave us something to do, some, some exercise to do. And then he would go into the storeroom to find something for the next lesson, I don't know. Every now and then, there was a very naughty student who would get up. Actually, Brandon, this is something you would do. Get up, they'd close the door and lock him in. And we're all giggling in the class, you know. And Mr. Smith is like, ah, oh, blokes, what's going on? Jerry, come and open up or whatever, you know. And like three or four times in the year, we caught him like that. And it was hilarious. One time, not in, not in, in uh, Zoll Smith's class, but another class, um, I think it was in grade 11, um, the teacher was absent. I don't know what happened, but we didn't have a teacher for that lesson and you know, in every class, there's like three or four kids. I was in an all-boys school, so it was a bit worse. There were three or four boys, like rowdy, make trouble on fun. They're just those disruptive types on purpose. The teachers know exactly what I'm talking about. And so the, in this class, there's no teacher. We had no work to do. Like the, 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 the model children, like myself, were quiet and doing other work. <laughs> but there were three or four others who were like noisy and throwing stuff and making jets and all. It was Commotion and chaos, you know, high school, all boys school. And then the principal walked past, Kenneth Elliott. Now, this guy was tall, stern-faced, frowning, and like he just commanded authority because of his position and because of his voice and how he looked. He always dressed in black. And so he obviously knew something was going on. He heard it a mile away. He walks into the class. There was like this hush that just like rippled across the classroom. And he just, he scowled at us trying to find the perpetrator. Obviously, it wasn't me. I was sitting quietly. But like, there's a big difference between a teacher 
who oozes authority and you listen for anything that Mr. Elliot said versus Mr. Smith. There's a big difference, right? <laughs> Jesus is claiming to be God, not the first time in John's gospel. Therefore, he's teaching. God is teaching. His teaching has authority. See that? His words must mean something more than other people's words. He has authority. There's no opinion more valuable, no truth more important, no wisdom more profound than what we find in the Bible. Let that sink in, friends. There's nothing higher philosophically, metaphorically, any other long word, more important or valuable or profound than what's in the Word of God. Jesus is saying, I'm teaching you, you're being taught by God. Friends, how, how precious should the Bible be to us? I want to ask you, how important is the Word of God in your life? Does it shape your thinking about every part of your life? Or do we just by default, because we haven't taken the time to shape our thinking by God's Word, do by default we just conform to the pattern of this world? as Romans 12 tells us. Does God's word dictate your speech and how you talk? Or do your words give no evidence that you belong to Christ? Listen to what James chapter 3 says. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. We did it so wonderfully this morning. And with the same tongue, we curse human beings on Monday morning in the traffic who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? What about our words, friends? I get so saddened and grieved when I'm around Christians and there's swearing and there's crude joking and there's undertones of racism or anger or whatever it might be. It's so saddening, friends, that God's Word hasn't shaped our speech. What about our actions? Do we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh? It's a real challenge, eh? I feel like I want to just press pause here for a moment and actually ask us to respond to God. I'm going to ask us if we can all just close our eyes where we're sitting and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come and search our hearts because Jesus says it's not hearing my word that can change your life, it's doing it. So Father, I pray right now for every one of us that Holy Spirit, you would show us those parts of our lives that are not matching up with your word. Maybe it's something you've highlighted already, something you've put your finger on in the past. Maybe we already know that, that convicting uncomfortable feeling of the Holy Spirit at work. But Father, I pray right now in every part of our lives, marriage, parenting, being an employee, our finances, our free time, our speech, everything, Father, search our lives. Show us those things that are either not pleasing to you or not helpful for our call. I pray, Father, for the grace to make changes, to line it up with your word.
Friends, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened to let your life line up with the word of God. God is trustworthy. His word is true. His promises are faithful. He is unchanging and he loves you. Do it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 51. Skipped a few because Jesus repeats himself because they're slow. Verse 51. I am the living bread. Well, he said this a whole bunch of times. That came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. He's making it quite clear. Which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharp, sorry, argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. I don't know why I always get the hard text to preach. It's like, yo, let me try. Jesus has been talking in metaphors throughout this dialogue. He says, I'm the bread of life. He talks about the bread from heaven. He talks about living bread, the bread of God. And so Jesus extends this metaphor to his physical body, which is about to be in the next short year or two, given for the life of the world. He kind of extends it. And to the Jewish leaders, talk of blood and sacrifice would have been a clear signal that Jesus is talking about the sacrificial system. That concept of sacrifice would have been clear to them. And I think what happened is that the Jewish people, they willfully misunderstood. They deliberately twisted his words. You sound like a cannibal. How can you give us your flesh to eat? You weirdo. And that's what they're thinking. They didn't say it. Well, it's not recorded in the Bible. But they made it look like he's talking about cannibalism. And, and there's some parts of the Christian church that have sadly taken the Scripture and used it as a basis for saying that every time we, we take communion, we take the grape juice, we take the, the cracker or the bread, as we're doing that, it transforms into the physical body and the actual blood of Jesus as we do that. That's not what Jesus was saying. I'll, I'll show you how I know that. Because he says... If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise you up on the last day. Just before that, verse 43, I think it was, he says, If you, whoever believes in me, I will raise up. So he's not contradicting himself. Believing in Jesus is the same as partaking in his blood and his flesh, but not in a physical way. It's a metaphorical eating. Jesus has to be received and internalized for there to be any true spiritual life inside us. Let's go to verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. No duh. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling Jesus about this, Jesus said to him, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The crowd, he's busy preaching. The crowd are leaving at the same time. No longer followed him. You do not 
want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. It's like giving them a free pass here. Now's your chance. Leave or stay? Simon Peter answered them, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So why was this teaching hard? Well, it wasn't hard to understand, but it was hard to accept. You can understand much about Jesus and the gospel, but to accept it, that's quite different. Jesus was saying that there's one way to the Father. By participating in my blood and my body, in the death on the cross, what I'm going to do in your place, by receiving that, there's one way to the Father. And many didn't accept it. It seemed that they possibly had a false faith. They followed Jesus for all kinds of reasons, for the food, for the miracles. They were spectators. They enjoyed being entertained, perhaps. But the moment the gospel becomes clear, the moment the gospel becomes clear, the authenticity of their faith is suddenly tested and exposed. So perhaps they were hidden unbelievers. They looked like they were part of the church, part of the disciples, but secretly they weren't actually really believing in Jesus as they should have. Maybe they never had real faith from the start. And so they realize, or they leave when they realize that the gospel actually isn't what they thought it was. I remember at high school, I wasn't a Christian at high school, but I remember a whole bunch of Christians, one of them a good friend who eventually took me to church, and that's how I came to follow Jesus. But amongst that Christian friendship group in high school, there were two guys in particular who were on fire for God. Every second break, they were at like a prayer meeting in the chapel and on fire for God. And I knew they loved God, but I didn't love God. I didn't want anything to do with God. But when we got to university, these two guys just, their path went godless. And now they're not serving God as far as I know. And I wonder, I don't know, but perhaps, perhaps they never had true faith to start with. I don't know. But they are perhaps even here today, perhaps in the, the wider Christian friendship circles we all have, that they are hidden unbelievers. They just haven't come to that point yet of fully believing and accepting and receiving Jesus as the only way to the Father. So many of uh, these people, they left Jesus. Jesus didn't seem too worried. In fact, he almost tried to get rid of the 12. Do you guys also want to go? It's a whole lot easier just ministering to sheep and not to people. Eh? Uh, but he, he, I think he was more focused on teaching the truth of God than about trying to build a big crowd and trying to grow the crowd. And this is a temptation that many of us face. Many of us who preach or who are elders or church leaders, we have to present the word without watering it down. We have to present God's truth Make it accessible, but without changing the message. Friends, we have to change the method. We have to change the technique and how we package this gift of salvation, but the message mustn't change. And there is a temptation to water down the message because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Be it publicly like I'm doing today, or when we counsel or give advice privately. We called to preach the whole counsel of God. Acts chapter 20, Paul, he's on his way to Jerusalem and he calls the Ephesian elders as he's going through the province of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. 
And he has his last, this is the last time I'm going to see you conversation, my final farewell with these people that he knows so well. And he says this, he says, I did not hesitate to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Acts chapter 20. Friends, we can't just take our favorite scriptures. Can't just take our favorite topics or whatever's popular at the moment in Christian circles, wherever they are around the world. We can't do that. I hope that you never know my favorite topics of preaching. Why? Because I want to present the whole counsel of God. We have to have a balanced view. Some people love the words of Jesus. Some people love the, the grace of God. Some people love there's every type of favorite thing out there, right? They're all important. And there are seasons where you might focus on one aspect because it's deficient in the church. That's okay. The pendulum swings, and we have to make sure it swings back to the middle again, right? But as best as we can, we want to present the whole counsel of God. We don't want to just tell people what they want to hear. This is what Timothy said, or Paul writes to Timothy. He gives him a prophetic warning, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Sounds like a podcast jockey. Jumping from podcast, I'm just whatever teachers I like, I'm going to listen to those ones only. Friends, it's a great resource to have access to podcasts and YouTube and all the amazing preachers around the world. But be careful you don't just pick and choose the ones that talk to your bias because we all have a bias. Yeah? For every single believer, not just for those who are preaching, our witnessing must not dim the light of the gospel. We get worried, what will they think if I say that I'm a Christian or I say this thing? And we're so concerned about upsetting people or making them feel awkward or uncomfortable, we'd rather not ruffle feathers. So we tend to not say things when we should possibly say things. I think there's some skill we can learn. We shouldn't be Bible bashing people, right? We can get better with how we present the gospel one-on-one. But we mustn't shy back from, from talking about our faith. And then Jesus says, this is the last bit, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. What does this mean, the spirit gives life, the flesh is of no avail in some translation? Does Jesus mean that the physical parts of life are not important? Only the spiritual ones, like when we're reading the Bible, when we're praying, when we're coming to to life group, and when we're serving cappuccinos, because that's very spiritual. But if we're watching rugby, that's not. If we're on holiday, that's not spiritual. If we're making food, that's not spiritual. Is Jesus saying the physical parts of our life are not important, but the spiritual ones are? No one's nodding or shaking their heads. Guys are tired, eh? I grew up having that understanding. Just because I was immature in my faith and I thought only the spiritual activities were important. God didn't worry too much about my hobbies. That's wrong. God worries about every part of our life. No, I think this is what Jesus was saying. The context of this whole conversation, he's talking about the bread of life that came from heaven. He's talking about people believing in him and and eating his flesh. It's a picture of the sacrifice and of our salvation. God drawing people to Jesus. He's talking about salvation, right? So in the context of salvation, what does that mean? I think it means this. 
that our salvation is a spiritual thing. That our flesh, and the Greek word that is used is the word socks, it means our carnal nature, nature, our fleshly nature, that doesn't help us get saved. It's of no avail. It's of no use. This fallen part of us doesn't help us come to Christ. Well, we know because God must draw us first. In fact, I think our fallen nature is a hindrance to us coming to Christ. He says, you need the Spirit of God. My words are spirit. You need the Spirit to bring life, to be born again, to become a new creation. That's the language the Bible uses about the new birth. Our fallen nature is of no help to us if we want to come to Christ and get saved. In other words, you can't become a Christian by continually improving your fallen nature. You can't become a Christian by being better, by pulling up your socks, by reforming your speech, or changing your actions, or trying to be like Mother Teresa. You can't become a Christian in any natural way. Spirit brings life. You can't improve yourself to become saved. And the disciples say, Jesus says, do you guys want to go? And they said, well, to whom else shall can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Do you know what Jesus was doing at this point? On the outside, he's like all serious. You know, that Jesus look. But inside, like, yes, they're getting it. Finally, the light is going on. The penny is dropping. Yo, been here for two and a half years. He's like, like Jesus doing a victory dance, his fist pumping, going inside. But on the outside, he's like, They were finally getting it. They realized no one else comes close to Jesus. This teaching, this power, it's unique. They probably didn't get all of it, but in their heart, something was happening. They realized, we can't go. Who else can we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. So friends, if that is true, if that is true, That has got major implications, massive. There are lots of facts. There's lots of information in the whole world. Most of it is not life-changing. Most of it does not have big implications, and most of it won't affect your Sunday afternoon, which I will be napping. (laughs) Right? So let me give you an example of some facts, very interesting facts. I'm a plant scientist. I work for a a seed company, we do vegetable seeds. Let me tell you some interesting facts about some plants, because I can tell you all day about plants, right? That are not going to change your life. Okay, peanuts, my boy. Please put up the first picture of the peanuts. Peanuts. Who's ever had peanuts like you have to peel the shell and you get the little seeds out? They're awesome, hey? Now, in my house, we have five, five, uh, five humans and a cat and a whole bunch of plants. And only one of the humans doesn't like peanut butter. Like she can't, my little daughter, she cannot stand even the smell out their brother's mouth of peanut butter. Another person in my family who I won't point any elbows at wants to put peanut butter with chocolate. My, my, my youngest, who's just turned five, Finley, he's about here now, after almost every dinner, I'm full, I don't want any more food and vegetables, but can I have a peanut butter spoon? He'll take a spoon to the peanut butter jar. We buy the 1 kg jar, right? Because it's like family size. 
takes a spoon and that's his dessert. And sorry, back to the plant. The plant is more important than the peanut. Anyway, so where, having a look at that picture, maybe you've grown peanuts, where, where do you harvest the peanuts? Yes, you guys are smart, even though that's the picture's there, right? You've got to clean the dirt off and pray for them a little bit, whatever. you. Now, inside you break out, sometimes there's one, but most often there's two little peanuts, right? What are those peanuts? They are seeds. Now tell me, where do you get seeds from? Not from the shop, no, you don't get seeds from the shop. But nice, nice try. Where do you get fruit? Okay, where do you, seeds come from? Flowers that are pollinated. Okay, biology 101. 101, yeah? Got it? You with me? So do peanuts have flowers underground? I'm making you think this one. You've never wondered about peanuts until today. Show us the next picture, Ethan. This is a peanut flower, and yet peanuts are under the ground. Do you know what happens? No. The flowers are pollinated, and then they grow under the ground. So like every other plant God created, like we can have flowers, we can have apples up here, or potatoes, we're, we're embarrassed, we're just going to have like tubers down here, right? Peanuts be like, yeah, we got flowers, and we got seeds underground. Like they're like the weird, the weird, ugly cousin of the plant family. But that's what happens. Go and Google it. It's true. Flowers out there, they pollinate and they grow underground. Now that is not going to change your life. You've got some interesting facts about plants, and I'm grateful that I could share that. Guys, I'm tired. Eh? <laughs> but the words of Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. That is life changing. Peanuts not be life changing. But Jesus, no one else has the words of eternal life. Some people say all roads lead to Rome. Maybe in a physical sense, but there's one road that leads to the Father. There's one road that leads to and it's a huge implication, friends. If we're on any other road, if we listen to anybody else's words, hear me carefully, if we listen to anybody else's words or are on any other road, we are missing eternal life. It's that big a deal. We will not find it. Friends, this, I, I trust that all of us, if not most of us, are born again in love with Jesus Christians. There might be some hidden unbelievers, I don't know, not for me to judge. But this is the message that we carry, that there is one road to the Father. You don't have to guess which road to take. There is one to a loving Father who died on behalf of us, that we didn't have to suffer. We could never pay the price for our sins. There is one who speaks words of eternal life. We, the church, carry this message. Man, it should be so easy for us to share it. I'm going to pray for us as we're ending. Father, we are so challenged when we look at these disciples. And as we've gone through chapter after chapter in the book of John, Father, we just see an unfolding, growing, deepening revelation of Jesus. Father, I want to pray for that revelation for all of us in Hope City Church, that every day, week, month, there's more we're learning about Jesus. And we would like the disciples be able to say at some point, where else can we go? 
You alone have the words of eternal life. I pray, Father, that you would deepen our understanding of your word, that your word would inform and dictate and shape every part of our lives, right the way from our thinking to our decision-making to our actions. God, I pray that the words of Jesus would ring in our ears every day, the authority that, that they carry. Father, I pray for this church that there would be a, a welling up of this life of God, but a welling outward of this gospel message, this good news that there is a way to the Father. Help us, Lord, to, to represent you well on this earth and to see your kingdom advance wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <laughs> Lennon said at the beginning of his preach that he wasn't giving us points. So where has God spoken to you? Let's not be, as Paul writes, those who look in the mirror and then walk away and don't make any change. Write it down because we do forget and life is busy. But write it down and ponder it and allow him to change you. Allow him to change you. So leaders meeting is now you quickly go grab a cup of coffee and we'll be starting here at half past 10. Have a wonderful Sunday and we'll see you next week. God bless you. <laughs>